On a dark desert night. A small voice calls. Sister, will you tell us a tale? Jinn, Magians, Sultans, Buried Treasure. We're going to explore what they say about their cultures then and why they captivate us now. Light your lamp and pour some tea while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the Fairy Tellers. We're going to be doing another episode with our Thousand and One Nights series. Uh, this is our fourth episode that we are doing of the Thousand and One Nights. So if this is the first episode in the series that you are listening to, then you'll probably be fine for this episode. <laughs> but uh, you're really missing out. Yeah. Because the stories and the research have been excellent. They really have. I've been really, really enjoying the Thousand and One Nights. Good, because it's only April. (laughs) (laughs) So, this story that we're going to be telling today is an orphan tale, which if you have been listening to all the episodes, you will already kind of know that already. We've we've discussed it before on like what a orphan tale is, but we'll kind of briefly go over that. So, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. It is technically... Part of our Thousand and One Nights series, even though it is technically not part of the Thousand and One Nights, which we'll discuss more after we like retell the tales, because there's definitely a reason why it's going to be included in the Thousand and One Nights series. <laughs> uh, but first, I kind of want people to mentally check in with themselves about what they think they know about Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, because when we retold Bluebeard. I said that it was a story that people had heard the name before, but they might not remember the tale specifics at all. And I thought that it was really hilarious how many messages that I got from people saying, I thought that this is going to be a story about a pirate. (laughs) And they were very disappointed. They were so disappointed. So what was funny about that to me was both the fact that like, I I get it. I understand. Bluebeard, Redbeard, Blackbeard. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Not to mention that, like, his lifestyle, like, the way that he lived his life, he could have been a pirate. Oh, yeah. He was all about violence and... Yeah. Violence. <laughs> he was he was into violence and, and violence. Kidnapping. Uh, and yeah, like, and he was a merchant. He was a merchant, which we've also discussed in our Sea Shanty episode. Merchants and pirates... There's something to be said that the business can go that direction. Yeah, the the line is drawn at different places along that spectrum by different people. (laughs) Yeah, and so, like, he would leave, like, he would go away on business, like, as a merchant for, like, these long... So, it's... I'm not saying he wasn't a pirate, but it was also (laughs) funny. (laughs) But there's no evidence to support the fact that he was either. Yeah. Um, but it was funny also because it honestly was such a common universal like message that I was getting. I got that message so often <laughs> after people had listened to it that they're like, oh, probably I'm the only one who thought this. Like, what? And it's like, nope, nope. A lot of people thought that Bluebeard was going to be a story about a pirate. So I know that Alibaba and the 40 Thieves is a tale that most people have heard about. But they might not know the story. I was just thinking myself, too. I was like, when you said, check in with yourselves, I did check in with myself. And I was like, what do I know about Alibaba? He had 40 thieves. 
and how's the rest of the song going aloud in the sings? Like that's I, that was like the extent. I was like, wait, how is it such a Alibaba famous thing? Had them forty thieves. But yeah, so I don't really know anything more about Alibaba than that. He had like a gang of guys that he would go around with and make that paper somehow. Thieving, I guess. <laughs> Thieving, I guess. Um, I like that. I like that. So I would be fascinated and I would love it if people wrote to me on the Facebook or the Instagram and told me what they thought the story Alibaba and the 40 Thieves was going to be about and if it matched up with their expectations. Because now I'm going to be really interested to talk to you about what you just said. So going back to talking about orphan tales... I'm going to kind of refresh everyone's memories. So it all goes back to our friend, Antoine Galan. I actually looked up how to pronounce his name since it's French. Mm-hmm. And I kept being like, Antoine Galand. It's like, that's not his name. Antoine Ant- Galan. Antoine Galan. So Antoine <laughs> Antoine Galland in the 1700s. He was the first European to try and make translations of the knights. And most of the stories he translated were from known manuscripts and manuscripts that if we don't have the copies of them, because I'm trying to remember if his copies have been lost to time, but they like were from like a library or something, or if we still have those ones. But most of the stories were translated off of these like known manuscripts. But some of his stories he claimed to hear from traveling storytellers, particularly from Hannah Diab. And Hannah Hannah Diab was a famous Syrian storyteller who was traveling around that time, who did like run in those circles and stuff, where Antoine Galland would have been exposed to the stories. So like it's possible (laughs) but there are no known written accounts or even like other recorded verbal accounts of some of those stories that predate galan publishing them and this wasn't discovered to be the case until 1984 when uh masin moody published his findings from like the 25 year deep dive into the night's to find the mother source for the tales. And yeah, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, that was a really quick and dirty like summary of stuff we've talked about before. But between 1709 and 1984, there was a considerable amount of research that was done on the knights and the individual tales themselves all under the false assumption that even tales like Aladdin and Alibaba and the 40 Thieves were original to the knights. Even the brothers Grimm thought that these tales were original to the knights, and they credited eight tales that they had been told and put into their collections as coming from the knights. Oh, wow. And yeah. they were all orphan tales? Eight of them? No. All eight of them were not orphan tales. There's a oh. mix of some of the ones that the Grimm's brothers ended up putting in their collection. Some of them were not orphan tales. For example, right. we talked about in the last episode we did the fisherman and the genie. Yeah. Or the fisherman and the gin. Yeah. There's a tale in the Brothers Grimm collection that is also like that tale. And that one's oh, okay. not that one's not an orphan tale. Right. That's a legit. Yeah. So 
The Brothers Grimm were collecting and publishing stories in Germany a hundred years after Antoine Galland was publishing his Thousand and One Nights in France. Because it was, these ones came out in like 1709 by Antoine mm-hmm. Galland. And the Brothers Grimm, theirs came out in 1812. So even if the tales were orphaned and invented by Antoine Galland himself, which does seem to be the most likely case, These tales were still morphing and changing through an oral tradition, an oral retelling of the tales. Right. Which is still fascinating to look at how they changed in a hundred years, even though somebody read the story at some point from France, looking at something from Antoine Galland, and then passed them on orally. It's still interesting to see how they changed. Yeah. So... What we're going to do in this episode first is we are going to hear Jeff tell us the story of, it's either called Simili Mountain or Semsimi Mountain, depending on the translation that you have. And this is recorded in the Grimm's Brothers Fairy Tales. And I find it very interesting that the different translations call it different names for reasons that you might understand once I'm done telling the story. (laughs) So, the story starts off that there were two brothers. One of these brothers was super rich, and the other one was poor. And the rich brother was not super generous to his poor brother, who was barely making a living dealing that grain to make his meager scratch, as they say on the streets. Dealing that grain, as they (laughs) say on the streets. (laughs) What drug is that? Is that heroin? No. (laughs) Ketamine? So one day the poor brother was pushing his cart through the forest when off to the side he sees this huge mountain that's like completely bare, no trees or anything on it. And he swears that he's never seen this thing before. And so he's like, whoa, this is amazing. There's this like crazy mountain out here. And while he was staying there, he sees these 12 tall, like wild looking guys start walking towards the mountain and so thinking that these dudes were robbers he pushed his cart into a thicket and climbed into a tree to kind of wait things out like he didn't want to get robbed he wanted to suss out the situation and so he sees these 12 men walk up to the mountain and they cried out mount semsi mount semsi open up and this barren mountain just separates right down the middle and the 12 men crawl into it and as soon as they're inside it closes back up again And the guy's sitting there, like, even more amazed than before to be like, there's a mountain I've never seen before, and it just, like, opens right up so that guys can come in. Well, a little while later, it opens up again, and the guys come out carrying these huge sacks on their back. And as soon as they're back outside of the mountain, they say again, Mount Semsi, Mount Semsi, close. And the mountain closes back together, and the entrance couldn't be seen. It was, like, seamless. And those 12 men went on their way. And so when they were completely out of sight, the poor guy's like, uh, okay, what's inside this mountain that they're going in and coming out with these huge sacks? So he goes in and he says, Mount Semsi, Mount Semsi, open up. And he knew the password. So the mountain opened right up for him. My sound effects are really inconsistent. Sometimes it's a zoop, sometimes it's a sometimes it's a. I hope people write in and comment about that. Yeah, they will. 
So the poor man goes inside and he sees that this entire mountain is basically just this hollowed out cavern full of silver and gold and jewels and pearls and all this stuff piled up, it says, quote, like grain, which I thought was a nice touch because it was something he'd be familiar with as a grain salesman. That is a nice touch. So the poor man didn't know what he should do. He's like, can I take any of this treasure for myself? Like, are these guys going to like get me? What's going on? So he decides to fill his pockets with gold, but he leaves behind, you know, the pearls and the precious stones and all that stuff. Doesn't touch any of that. And then when he goes to leave, he says, Mount Semsi, Mount Semsi, close. And the mountain closes back up and he goes home with his cart. So poor man, not so poor any longer, goes home without a care in the world. He can buy bread for his wife and children, he can buy some wine. And he lived pretty happily and, you know, honestly, except for the fact that he just stole a bunch of this gold. But he <laughs> gave to the poor. He did good stuff for everyone. He was pretty generous. And because he was generous, he soon ran out of money. And he went to his brother to borrow a bushel, which is like a container. Basket. Yeah. yeah, a basket. And so he took the bushel, which is like a basket, and he went to the mountain and got some more money. And again, he didn't touch any of the other valuable things. He just grabbed cold, hard gold. He brings it back home, lives his life again. Again, very generous, helping out the poor. Buying people drinks and dinner, I'm assuming, whenever they're out, he gets the check. So he's through that cash again, and he has to go get some more money. And so he goes to borrow another bushel from his brother. So the brother is getting a little suspicious and, to be honest, quite envious of the fact that poor brother is now rich brother. And rich brother is just, like, less rich than formerly known as poor brother. Yeah. I mean, we all want to be rich brother. <laughs> yeah. And by comparison, he's not as rich because his rich his other brother's richer than him. Yeah. So, so now, he's, now like, he's just brother. Yeah. Which no one wants to be just brother. So he was like, where on earth is this guy getting all this money from? Like he sells grain for crying out loud. For crying out. So rich brother, who's less rich than poor brother, it's confusing, decided to come up with like a little trap when he was lending out the bushel to the brother. He covered the bottom of the bushel with pitch. And so when he got the bushel back, there was a single gold coin stuck in the pitch at the bottom of the bushel. So he knew that somehow he'd been filling this bushel up to measure, you know, gold coins. And so he goes to the brother and he asks him, he's like, what have you been measuring in my bushel, dude? And the guy poor brother grain salesman is like you know just the usual wheat barley that kind of stuff and the rich brother's like oh yeah then what's the deal with this a gold coin bum 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 and he threatened he's like look tell me the truth now or i'm going to go to the court bring up charges against you because you're obviously into some shady stuff and so the poor brother is like, okay, okay. He told him everything that had happened about how he saw these guys going into the mountain. He told him about the password to get in and how there's so much treasure inside. And so Rich Brother's like seeing an opportunity that he can once again become the richest brother. So he goes to the mountain to get some treasure for himself. And when he gets to the mountain, he cries out, Mount Semsi, Mount Semsi, open up. And the mountain opens up and he goes inside and he saw all these riches. And he's like, I don't know what I should grab. So he grabs as many precious stones as he could and, you know, jewels and, and pearls and all that. And he's getting ready to carry it outside. But because he was like so preoccupied with 
the riches that he had, he forgot what the name of the mountain was. So he cries out, Mount Semele, Mount Semele, open up. And that was not the right name of the mountain. And so the mountain was like, I'm not opening for this dude. And so the mountain remained closed. And so this guy started getting a little scared, started getting a little panicked. And the more scared and more panicked that he got, the more confused he became. And he was realizing like, oh man, all these treasures are no good to me if I'm stuck inside of the mountain. And so he's stuck in there all day. And in the evening, the mountain opens up from the outside and the 12 wild men come walking in. And when they see the rich brother, they start laughing and they say, bird, we have you at last. Did you think we wouldn't notice that you came here twice already? It's like, we couldn't catch you then, but this third time we got you and we're not going to let you get out again. And so the brother cries. He's like, no, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother that did it. But no matter how much he begged for his life, in spite of everything that he said, they still chopped off his head. The end. Is that seriously the end? Yeah. Jeez. What a bummer. <laughs> Doesn't even go back to poor brother. He's like, and poor brother lived out the rest of his lives happily or whatever. It's like, nope, rich brother just gets decapitated. Which I think it's interesting that they have different names for the story. And in some stories, it's the correct name of the mountain. Yeah. And in some stories, it's the like incorrect name. Which, yeah. like, that's, to me, that's interesting. And it, like, if it were a story that was written by a single author, I would place meaning onto the fact that they chose to do the wrong name as the title versus the right name. Also interesting is you hear Mount Semsi open up or whatever. And it's, like, Semsi, Sesame, open Sesame. It was, like, I, was like I, I understand why we're talking about this in a Thousand and One Nights episode. Yes. Indeed. And we'll talk we'll talk a little bit more about that because there was something that I found interesting about the name change as well. Or the the phrase, the phrase change. So I of course have a quote from Robert Irwin in The Arabian Nights a Companion. Because Of course. Of course. <laughs> so uh he says Tales from the Knights albeit stripped of their specifically Islamic and Oriental features, circulated orally in Germany in pre-modern times, and for that matter in Italy, France, and Spain too. In most cases, it is impossible to determine whether those tales passed into Europe first by word of mouth or in manuscript form. That is super fascinating to me. I mean, because like, like we had talked about right before you like retold the story, Stories from the Knights, both orphan tales and Knights originals, mm -hmm. were circulating when people were like kind of taking the interest to like start writing tales down. But I think we've mentioned this in other episodes too that there are elements from the Knights that appear in some William Shakespeare plays, which definitely William Shakespeare predates Antoine Galan. And also in the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, which predates wow. William Shakespeare. Yeah, by um, quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and so there obviously was some word of mouth that was going on passing stories. But then there might be manuscript form then too. Like there's no way of telling whether, you know, the the story 
that the Grimm's brothers ended up recording. And some of the stories that they were recording were actually people who had grown up in France. Mm-hmm. Because the borders of Germany and France and everything going on were a little bit nebulous at the time. So it's not clear whether the Brothers Grimm were writing down this story from somebody who they had read this story themselves from Antoine Galen and then just retold their own version, or if it had orally been circulating for a hundred yeah, years. hundred years. Yeah. That's super interesting. So I think a thing to take note of at this point is the question, does this story feel or sound stripped of specifically Islamic and Oriental features? Was this story taken out of a context of like a, a dark desert night and placed into like more of a once upon a time? As I was listening, I was specifically like listening for that, which I feel like puts everybody else listening to the episode now kind of at a disadvantage because I was already thinking about it. Yeah. And maybe we'll get back to that, like after I retell mine, because it might be easier to tell after like I yeah. retell mine. But I don't I don't think I heard anything in that story that specifically placed it in a Middle Eastern like context. Yeah. That's what I was gonna say too. The only thing that I could think of Two things. The fact that it was like a bare mountain rather than a mountain that's like covered in trees and stuff might indicate like, oh, this is like a desert mountain. Maybe. You know, again, yeah, knowing yeah, yeah, that yeah. this is part of the Thousand One Nights episode, my brain was slightly primed yeah. to look at similarities. Yeah. And also the name of the mountain doesn't sound particularly German for sure, like yeah. Simeli or... Semsi. Yeah. Not that it necessarily sounds, you know, Arabian either, but yeah. maybe, or what they might have thought would sound Arabian or something. Um, but it also could sound like Italian or it could be another European language influence to go into yeah. that mountain. Those are the only things that I could think of. It's like nothing about this is like, oh, specifically Arabian. Yeah. Yeah. To me, like, it it sounds more, I mean, and yeah, like, our brains, because this is, like, A Thousand One Nights episode, our brains maybe could, like, place this story in a different, like, context right off the bat. It's also not specifically, like, European necessarily either. Yeah. Like, all like, of these things are things that could, you could pl- place this anywhere almost. Yeah. The way that this is told, yeah, it kind of is like, oh, this kind of places it anywhere. In, in it's, more su- of, it's super generic. Yeah. In more of a, like... Once upon a time in a land far away, any land, not any specific land, just a place and a time where there was a poor brother and a a richer brother and thieves. Yeah. Like it could be robbers. Yeah. It could be in Japan. It could be in, you know, like pre colonialized, like America, even, you know, like it could be anywhere based on kind of the description that they gave. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that'll be interesting, I think thinking about as I retell a tale. So now we're going to look at the tale that is known in English as Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And the reason why I worded it like that <laughs> is because in French, when it was written, it was titled Les Finesses de Morgana, The Stratagems of Morgana. 
which, when I'm retelling the tale, will make more sense why the titles are so different <laughs> from each other. And it is going to turn it into um, a feminist rant. So I hope everyone's ready for that. Um, <laughs> which I'm sure everybody's like, like we've we heard the it. podcast before. <laughs> we we know that it's going to devolve into a feminist rant at some point. But I'm thinking like even people who, if you at the beginning of the episode were kind of like checking yourself, you're like, what do I know like about this tale? You might be like, wait, how can this turn into a feminist rant? <laughs> oh, 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 or even and like, how does Morgana play into this? Yes, yes, like what? And who is Morgana? No. In the French version, she's apparently the titular character, but in English, but we in English, it up to Alibaba. Yeah, like why would we want to mention a woman? I'm uh, excited. I'm looking forward to it. Good. I'm intrigued. So I want us all again to keep in mind that this tale could have come about in like two different ways. So this tale could either be Antoine Galen is telling the truth and he heard this tale spoken by a Syrian storyteller, Hannah Diab, or he wanted to try his hand at creating a tale in the style that he had been reading and translating and publishing. So in Stranger Magic, by Marina Warner, she writes, In Galan's journal for 1709, Galan noted that among the 13 stories which Hannah Diab had told him were Les Fonesses de Morgana, the stratagems of Morjana. Morjana's skill echoes the cleverness of the youngest sister in Mary Jane Lahertier's The Skillful Princess and her stratagems, The Ruses of the Cinderella Figure by Marie Catherine Delanoy. Both of these fairy tales in the French literary tradition had appeared in 1697. Uh. So you might be able to tell from that quote two things. One, that Marina Warner is of the opinion that Galan most likely invented the stories himself, and that this story I'm about to tell you is mostly about a very clever woman. Which, again, I would love to know if people at the beginning, when I asked them to check in with themselves and see what they might already know about this story, saw that coming, that this story was going to be about a woman. Um, Because I definitely did not. Me either. (laughs) I'm thrown for a complete loop right now. Yeah, because when I heard about Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, I was like, I feel like I know what this story is. And I think what I thought was kind of what you had said that like, Alibaba had had 40 thieves that like he was like the leader of 40 thieves. I think that's yeah. like what I thought was like what the story was about. So get ready for this. Buckle up, boys and girls. Okay. So once in the kingdom of Persia, there was a man who had two sons. One of his sons was named Kazim. The other one's name was Alibaba. <laughs> I think we, we all knew his, there had to be one. So their father was not a rich man. And when he died, his, what little possessions he had was split among his two sons, which was a meager amount. But Kazim married a woman who was a wealthy widow. And Alibaba married a woman who he loved dearly, but who also had no money. (laughs) (laughs) So Kazim was now a rich brother. 
and Alibaba was a poor brother. And he was so poor that the only way that he could get money was to go to the outskirts of the town that they lived in and collect firewood to sell in the city. And that's what he did every day so that when he would return at night, he could sell firewood to people and then have enough money to buy a meager amount of food for him and his wife. So one day, Alibaba was out on the outskirts of town, picking up his firewood, and then he saw a dust cloud suddenly forming out in the desert. And he was like, what is that? And pretty soon he could hear the thundering of horses' hooves on the ground. And so he quickly hid himself because he did not know what was about to show up because it sounded like a big group of somebody. Mm -hmm. So he climbed up into a tree nearby and hid. And pretty soon the men rode up to him and it was 40 thieves. And they, on the back of their horses, had bags of gold. And so he watched them silently (laughs) while they tied up their horses to the trees that he was like hiding up in. So he was like, oh, I need to stay like really quiet and really still. <laughs> so they tied up their horses and they climbed down. And the the biggest, roughest looking man among them, who was also the best dressed, <laughs> who was clearly the leader of the group, he walked over to like a wall of foliage and he pulled it apart. And there was like just the rock there. And the guy backed up and he said... Open sesame. And the mountain opened, and all these men carried their bags of gold inside. And once they were inside, whoop, the mountain closed up again. And Alibaba was like, oh my gosh, what did I just see? And he <laughs> was, he didn't know if they were about to come back out again or yeah. like how long they were going to be in there. So he didn't want to risk climbing out of the tree and being seen by them. So he waited, and it, they weren't in there very long. Before the mountain opened back up again, the men stepped out. And when they got out, the leader of the guy, he turned around and he said, close sesame. And the wall closed back up, back to the wall of rock where you couldn't even see it. He moved the foliage, foliage. He moved the foliage so it was covered back up. They got on their horses and they rode off. So Alibaba climbed down from the tree that he was in and he thought to himself, well, they're probably not going to immediately come back since they just left and dropped off stuff. I want to have a look in. And so he goes over to the wall and he moves aside the leaves and he says, open sesame. They open up. He goes in. And his jaw drops to the floor because he's like, oh, my goodness, this place is filled with gold and jewels and gems and all kinds of riches. So he noticed inside that there was light coming from somewhere. And he looked up and inside of this tall, tall cavernous ceiling, there was a hole at the very top that was letting light shine down into Mm. the cave. So he gathered up as much gold as he felt he could carry safely on his one donkey that he had to carry, like, (laughs) the firewood. So he gathered up enough 
And he went back over to the wall that had magically closed up behind him. And he said, open Sesame. And it opened up and he walked out and he turned around and he said, close Sesame. And it closed back up. And so he piled up the gold coins onto the back of his donkey. And then he hid the gold underneath a pile of sticks to make it look like he was still, you know, carrying all that firewood that he normally Right, yeah. Had. So he gets home and his wife is like, why do you still have a pile of wood on the back of the donkey? Didn't you go into town to sell it? And he was like, no, be quiet, woman. <laughs> and he like leads the donkey like out back behind you know where nobody could kind of see and he pulls the sticks aside and shows his wife this like giant pile of gold that he has and she was like i never thought that i would marry such a bad man as you who would be thieving (laughs) which i'm like good for her for being like uh no i would rather be poor than be married to like some like horrible thief man But he was like, no, 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 no. I stole this from thieves. So it's not really thievery because, like, I stole it away from people who had already stolen it. Which, sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of the thieves code. Yeah. I'm like, I see the moral conundrum there. And he's like, it's not it's not stealing if you steal it from somebody who stole it first. Which I'm like, hmm. Okay. I mean, I'm not. I'm not not on his side. I'm not on his side. Really? Then I'm like, then you might not agree with some other shenanigans that are about to go on. (laughs) Well, so I just say that because like, okay, yeah, I don't necessarily think that I don't feel bad for the people that he stole from. Yes. Because they stole it from someone else already. Yes. But the fact of the matter is like that gold belongs rightfully to someone that isn't him. Yes. If he was stealing it back. You know what I mean? Like if yes. someone stole from him and he stole it back, like that's not stealing. That's retrieving my stuff that was taken from me. Yeah. yeah. Or if he was planning on giving it back to those people, then it's not stealing. But it's yeah. like, oh, like I can steal from them and it's fine and I can have this money. That's yeah. not mine. But yeah. anyway. I really love discussing this moral conundrum with you. <laughs> we don't have we don't have all the right answers, but we do recognize the nuance of this problem. Anyway, so he explains to his wife, like. Like, okay, I saw these people, blah, 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 like stuff went down. And so she's like, oh, okay, I understand now. Great. And he's like, we can't look like we got rich too fast or it will be like suspicious to like other people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bury all of the this gold that I stole in our backyard so that um, nobody will like get suspicious. And his wife was like, okay, I like that idea, but before we put it in the ground, I think we should I think we should count it so that we know how much there is. And he was like, there is way too much here for us to count. And she was like, well, then maybe we could weigh it. And he's like, I don't have weights. And she was like, oh, your brother has weights. We should go and ask him for some of his weights. And he was like, okay, sure. So Alibaba's wife leaves and goes over to Kazim's house. So Kasim isn't home and just his wife is there. And so Alibaba's wife says, hi, hey, we need to weigh some grain that we have. Would we be able to borrow your weighted scales? 
And she was like, oh, yeah, we have we definitely have those. Do you want our large ones or our small ones? And she's like, um, and she had thought to ask for the large ones, but then she didn't want to be make it too suspicious. So she yeah. was like, um, we'll take the small, small scales. Um, yeah, it's a real small scale operation. <laughs> so the wife thought really quick and she just said, oh, we're, we're going to be weighing grain. We were able to get some grain a lot and we just want to weigh it to find out how much it is and Kasim's wife thought this was a little suspicious so she was like oh yes one second while I go get those scales for you so she went into the back to go grab the scales and she took a little bit of wax and she put it on the underside of the scales hoping that some of the grain would stick to it so that she could find out what grain uh, Alibaba was suddenly so rich enough to have that he would need to weigh it yeah. So Kazim's wife came back with the scales and she was like, sorry that I was so long in the back. I was having problems finding it under all the stuff we own because <laughs> we're rich. And Alibaba's wife was like, oh, okay, cool. Sure. No problem. Took the scales and went home. So they spent the night weighing all the gold so they knew how much they had and then dug a hole, buried it in the back. So the next day, Alibaba's wife took the scales back and said thank you to the sister-in-law. And then she went home and the sister-in-law looked to see if any grain stuck to the bottom of the scales. And what she found was a gold coin stuck to the bottom of the scale. And she was like, what in the world? So when she saw her husband, she was like, Kasim, you think that you are so rich and wealthy because you're married to me, but your brother is so much more richer than both of us. And he was like, how could this be? How could Alibaba be richer than both of us? And she's like, he's so rich that he can't count his gold. He has to weigh it with our scales. <laughs> and Kazim was like, how could this possibly be? Like, how did this like come about? So he quickly marched his butt over to Alibaba's house to ask <laughs> him what in the heck was going on. So... He confronts Alibaba and is like, tell me where you got this gold coin. And at first, Alibaba was like, no, like, I, I don't like I, I don't have gold coins. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, no, my wife found this gold coin. We know that you've been using our scales to count. I am going to go to the police and I'm going to tell them that you've become a thief because that's the only way that you could have come into all this money. If you don't tell me right now where you got this money. So Alibaba was like, OK, OK, calm down. I was over at this mountain and I watched these like thieves like come and unload their bags and put them into the mountain. And, you know, they said open sesame and this door opened and they went in and Kazim was like, wait, wait, where did this happen? And Alibaba told him really quickly where kind of like the area that like it was. And Kazim was like, oh, OK, you are going to take me there. And Alibaba was like, why would I take you there? And he was like, because I want to have as much money as you have. And so you're going to take me and show me where this place is. And Alibaba was like, I don't know if that's safe because I don't know when these men are going to come back or if they're going to notice that, you know, money has already been stolen from them. We need to like lay low. And Kazim was like, no, you are going to show me tomorrow where you got this money. So finally, Alibaba was like, okay, fine. I will show you where I got all this money. So that night, Kazim made sure that he had three donkeys ready to go. So he had enough donkeys to carry even more gold back. And then in the middle of the night, he decided 
that no, he didn't want Alibaba to go back with him. He wanted to go by himself so that he could get as much money as he wanted without Alibaba knowing how much he had. So in the early morning hours before he was going to meet up with Alibaba, he took off with his three donkeys to the place where Alibaba had told him that he had seen all this happen. So it took him a while searching around to find the same spot that his brother had, you know, found, pulled apart the leaves to find where it goes. But when he did, he said, open sesame and the doors opened and he walked in and immediately once he walked in, boom, the doors closed behind him. But he didn't really notice because, as we stated about, there was light coming down from the top of the cave. So he quickly filled up the sacks that he had with him and was about to go out to put them with his donkeys. And he turned around and he noticed the doors had closed. And he was like, no problem. He turned around and he looked at the doors the closed doors, and he said, open barley. And they did not open. So he said, open rye, open oats. And he started just going through all the names of grain, open wheat, everything that he could think of. But the word sesame eluded his brain. (laughs) So he was getting more and more panicked as he was in there, realizing he could not remember the word to get out. And then he started to hear the sound of hooves. Oh. Horses' hooves beating on the ground. And he looked around, trying to see, like, a place to hide. And he couldn't, he was like, no, I'm not going to be able to, like, hide in here. What can I do? So he decided what he was going to do was the second that it opened up, he was going to rush the door. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, gosh, buddy, that's not the right idea at all. Yeah, it doesn't seem smart to me. What he should have done is... Lane like laid down on the ground right under that hole and just been like, oh, my back. (laughs) (laughs) Did he fell? Yeah, I'd be like, what happened? I am delusional. That's what he should have done. (laughs) So pretty soon he heard from outside somebody shout open sesame. And he immediately was like, oh, you idiot. And the rock door moved aside and he rushed to go out. But there were 40 guys fully armed standing outside there. And they quickly chopped him into four pieces. Ooh. Yes. Which it doesn't describe how he was like sectioned off. I feel like it's like one of those memes where they're like, if a dog wore pants, would he wear them like this or like this? It's like. If they chopped him into four pieces, how would they have done it? Like this? Like this? Or like this? Yeah, like which? Like, in my brain, I almost, like, <laughs> thought of it as, like, like in quadrants. Yeah. But like then, cut him in half and then cut him in half again. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that fully, like, cutting through the skull, the bone, yeah. like, that's hard. So, like, I would imagine, like, I don't know, at the at the neck, at the, like... Under the armpits and then like the torso. Yeah, uh, under the, the armpits though, that would be tough because you got to go through like the whole rib cage the and whole the, rib like, cage. Thing. Yeah, They're probably like taking off taking off his head and a couple of limbs, you know. Maybe yeah. And maybe like one fell swoop to cut him like at the waist where there's just basically the spine to get through. Not that that's not a hard thing, but yeah. 
Huh. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. Um, except for the person who has to sew them back together again. What? Yeah. <laughs> Jeff, like... Is that a thing? Oh. Oh, get excited. So... They they all kind of like looked around. They're like, how did he get in? And they checked to see if he had come down from like a rope, if somebody at the top had helped lower him down into the mountain. But they didn't see any sign of rope or any other person there. And his three donkeys had run off when it had heard the the hooves from all the horses. They had already run off and scattered. And so there was no evidence that he had been there with anybody else. And so they were like, you know what? Just in case he did tell somebody about our secret password, let's put his dismembered body right by the entrance so that the next person who comes in will know that he was caught and what their punishment will be. Mm -hmm. So they put the chunky pieces of Kazim at the entrance of the door and they unloaded their treasure that they were dropping off and they left. So, meanwhile, Kazim had never met Alibaba to go out with him. Alibaba didn't know what was up with that. So he went over to Kazim's house and saw his wife. And his wife was in a panic because she was like, my husband left really early in the morning. He never came back. I don't know, like, what happened with him. Like, he's gone. I don't know, like, what's going on. So Alibaba was like, you know what? It's only been a day. Let's give him some time because, like, maybe he is just late in getting back. Let's wait. So the next day, when his brother had not come back, Alibaba got a little worried. So he went out to the spot to see if his brother had tried to go there without him. So he got there and he saw that, you know, the ground was unsettled as if somebody had, as if a large group of people had, like, recently been there. So uh-huh. he got a little worried, but he didn't see any sign of his brother there. So he went to the rock and he said, open sesame. And it opened up and there right in front of him was his dismembered brother. So he loaded the pieces of his brother on the back of his donkey and he carried him home back to his house. So he took his brother back to his own home And told his sister-in-law what had happened. And his sister-in-law was very upset, very, like, like worried. And Alibaba was like, okay, you have to calm down because these robbers are going to be waiting to find out if anybody had a burial that was not, like, right or a body that was, like, damaged. They'll they'll want to know. Yeah. Uh, Because there is money that's already been taken. And they're going to figure out that money has been taken. They want will want to go to the home of whoever has this money. So we need to make it look like this wasn't a weird murder. <laughs> we we have to, like, sort this out somehow. And so he was like, listen, I know you're worried about what's going to happen to you after this. But as is tradition, like, since you're my brother's wife, I will marry you and you will become my second wife. And, like, we'll move in together. Which was, that was the custom. I'm like, nope, it checks out. Um, He's like, but first, we have to come up with a plan. So Alibaba went to Kazim's slave, a very clever woman named Morjana. (laughs) We got there. We got to her. So we went to her and he was like, we need to find somebody who can sew this body back together, but also who can keep a secret. 
And Marjana was like, of course. Yep. I know exactly what to do. No problem. And so he was like, okay, cool. So the first day, Kazim's wife, she goes over to the local pharmacist. And she was like, oh, I'm so worried. I need medicine for my husband. He's really, really unwell. He suddenly is just doing very poorly. He's so weak. He can like barely speak. I just need some like medicine for him. So the pharmacist gets them the like some medicine for him and gives it to his wife. So Kazim's wife goes home and, you know, doesn't give it to her husband. We all know he's dead. <laughs> so then the day after that, Marjana goes to the pharmacist and she's very, very worried. And she was like, oh, we need something. He's he's at death's door. He's he's going. We, we're scared he's going to die. His wife doesn't want to leave his side. Is there anything, anything that you can give us to to help him? And so the pharmacist was like, oh, man, that's awful. awful. So he makes up something else and gave it to them. But then the next day, the whole town could hear the wailing and screaming coming from the house that was in mourning for this man who had clearly just died. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing weird here. So early in the morning, Marjana goes out before the sun is up to a cobbler who she knows wakes up earlier than anybody else. And she goes to him and she says, I have a job for you, but can you keep a secret? And he was like, well, I do not like the sound of this. No, no, no. <laughs> so she hands him a gold coin and she says, can you keep a secret? And he was like, I might be able to keep a secret. Yes. And she was like, I have something that I need you to sew, but you must never talk about it ever again. And he was like, okay. Is there more gold <laughs> where this came from? And she's like, absolutely. And he was like, okay. So Marjana quickly blindfolds Baba Mustafa and she leads him back to Kazim's house, where at this point the whole family is mourning <laughs> this man who's died. So Baba Mustafa is led into a dark room with barely any light and the blindfold is taken off of him and in front of him are the four pieces of Kazim. And he was like, oh, I'm supposed to sew this back together? <laughs> and they're like, yes, here is some gold. And he's like, super duper. Yes, I can do that. So he quickly, expertly sews this body back together so that then the family yeah. can wrap him in a shroud and sew that up so that it all looks, you know, like one complete person that was never cut up into tiny pieces. <laughs> and when the, the coffin maker arrived at the house, Marjana quickly paid him outside so that he never came in to see the body. So they got him into the coffin, nailed it closed, and had a normal funeral for him. And then once that funeral was held, Alibaba moved his household into the household of his deceased brother, because, of course, the more comfortable place to live was in the already established <laughs> nice household of this woman who has now been twice widowed. Yeah, man. Indeed. So 
Fast forward to, like a couple days later, the 40 thieves ride up to outside of the cave and the door opens, opens, sesame, it opens. And there is no dead body where they left it. That is suspicious. And that's also when they noticed that some money was missing. Because they didn't notice before when they were really upset about finding this dude there. But now they've noticed there's money missing and there's a full-on dead body missing. So now they know that one other person at least must know about this. So they all have a big group meeting and they say, okay, we know that there's this problem. Somebody, a scout, needs to go into the city and see if anybody is talking about a mysterious death that has occurred and they need to figure out where this death occurred and they all kind of like look at each other and they're like okay okay yeah somebody should do that a scout should do that and then they all agree for some reason that if the scout goes in and is wrong that they're gonna murder the scout (laughs) (laughs) so i'm sure people were volunteering like crazy to be the one to go and do it but what's crazy is like yeah then one of them was like like oh yeah i'm not afraid i'll do it which i'm like oh buddy now laying it all on the line yeah like i don't know okay you're like missing a few dollars and cents and they're like i'm willing to die for that like no 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 so the first scout early the next morning goes into the city but he was listening out to see if anybody was talking about a mysterious death somebody who had been like chopped up in some way so he's walking along and he notices in the early morning lights a cobbler is out working on some shoes. And so he goes over to the cobbler and he's like, you're so old, I bet you can barely even see those shoes in this dim light. (laughs) And Baba Mustafa, the cobbler who is waking up the earliest in the morning, he replies, oh, my eyes are fine. You should have seen what I was uh, sewing up the other morning in the dimmest of light. Oh, man. And the scout was like, what were you sewing in dim light? I bet it looked awful. And he was like, no, I sewed up a dead man who was cut into four pieces. And by the time I was done sewing him up, you could barely tell that he'd been cut up into pieces. Come on, Baba Mustafa. (laughs) Yep. Immediately, the scout was like, wow, (laughs) that was fortuitous that I walked in. First chance he gets. They paid him specifically not to talk about it. And he's like, oh, hey, stranger, let me tell you about this thing. (laughs) So the scout asks, where did you do this? To which Baba Mustafa replied, oh, no, no. I promised that I would not tell. (laughs) Plus, I was blindfolded the way there and the way back again. And the scout says, well, I mean, what if I give you this gold coin? So he drops some gold money in (laughs) and he says, oh, I don't know if I would be able to tell you where it is with this amount of money. And the scout says, what if I just blindfolded you again and you take me the path that you were led And Baba Mustafa decided that that was well within (laughs) the boundaries of the promise that he had been, you know, that he had been paid Mm -hmm. for the last time. Which, again, uh, on a technicality, no, I don't even think that counts on a technicality. (laughs) I'm like, like, no, I'm judging you. Uh, Straight up blabbing. Yeah, like, you're a snitch. 
So the scout uh, blindfolds Baba Mustafa and lets him lead him down the path that he went. And when they got to the front door of this house, Baba Mustafa had stopped and said, here, here's where I was brought. So the scout unblindfolds him and he looks at the door and he asks Baba Mustafa, who lives here? And Baba Mustafa was like, I don't know. I, I don't know who lives here. I've, I've never been to this house before. And so the scout makes a tiny little white mark on the front of the door with a little like piece of chalk. Mm -hmm. And they go back the way they came. So Marjana walks outside and she sees this little white mark on the bottom of the door. And she goes, what mischief is this? It looked very suspicious to her. So what she did is she picked up the little chalk rock and she went to four or five houses up, making that same mark on the door. And then four or five houses down, making the mark on the door. Mm. And then she went about her business. So quickly, the scout goes back to his group and he tells them, guess what? I found the house. And they're like, that is excellent news. We'll go in the cover of darkness. so it gets dark outside they all go to the house and he's like sees the first mark on the door and he's like this is the one this is the one that i marked this is the door and one of the other thieves goes well what about this mark on this door (laughs) and he's like wait what and then another thief looks and he's like what about the mark on this door and the captain asks them wait which mark is it? Which which mark? Which door? Which door is it? And the scout's like, I don't know. Uh-oh. And they're like, well, we Somebody's said. getting murdered. <laughs> yep, exactly. What's funny is in this story, they were like, like, and the scout rightly agreed that that was what he agreed to. And he had indeed failed. And so he happily presented his <laughs> neck to have himself like beheaded. And I was like. Wow, those are really like cheerful thieves. They're like, you know what? It's cool. I deserve it. (laughs) (laughs) So immediately after that, the captain of the 40 thieves asks, now the captain of the 39 thieves, (laughs) (laughs) asks, okay, who wants to go be our scout tomorrow? (laughs) Which I'm like, wow, wow. Somebody did volunteer. They were like, yeah, I'll go. Mm. And they're like, cool. So He went right to Baba Mustafa's house and same conversation was like, hey, I had a friend who came earlier and he said you showed him a house. And Baba Mustafa's like, oh, no, I was sworn to secrecy. Um, And he was like, what if I paid you? And Baba Mustafa was like, oh, yeah, for sure. So he blindfolded him, led him back to the exact same house. And this time the scout made a smaller, more discreet red mark on the door. And then he went back to the 40 thieves to tell to tell them the good news. Out walks Marjana and she's like, what is this? Because I'm telling you, if you're the person who has to clean things all the time, you notice when somebody's been getting your stuff dirty. <laughs> I'll tell you what. She was like, not today. I'm not cleaning this off. So she then takes like a red rock and goes and makes the same little red 
discrete mark on the same houses up and down. So that night, Alibaba and the 40 thieves, 39 thieves, get there. And, you know, the scout was like, here, this was the door. I made this little red mark. And then one of the thieves was like, what about this little red mark? What about this one? And he was like, oh, no, same thing happened. He was like, I- I'm so sorry. I deserve to be murdered for this. I am an idiot. So they chop off his head. And this time, the leader of the 40 thieves was like, if you can't do something. <laughs> so he realized that like he needed to be the one to get this figured out. So the next morning, what he did was he went over and... He talked to Babu Mustafa, did the whole rigmarole, showed him exactly how to get back to the door. And this time, instead of making a mark on the door, he looked at all of the features all around it. He looked at the shapes of the trees in the yard. He looked at like the chinks in the fencing and he just like checked out the whole thing until he knew that no matter what, This house was frozen in his memory. (laughs) So the captain of the now 38 thieves minus him, 37 thieves is what he's got left of his crew, (laughs) not counting him. So he goes back to his group and he says, okay, I know where this house is. I have a plan. I like all we have to do is get some supplies. What we need is we need 19 mules and 38 leather jars that are for carrying oil. And I'm like, okay, that's good math, because like 38 divided by two is 19 mules. <laughs> so there's two mules per... Yeah, two leather... Two oil... Yeah, two oil jars... Jars per mule. Per mule. One but on each all, side, so the weight balances out. Exactly. Um... Uh, <laughs> We don't want any lopsided mules. So they just needed one of those leather jars to actually be filled with oil because the other 37 were going to be filled with thieves. (laughs) One thief per leather oil jar. And then the captain would not go in the jar because he had disguised himself as an oil merchant. So once he had all of the thieves inside the jars, he waited until it started to get dark. And then he led his procession of mules and jarred thieves into the city. So when he came upon the house of Alibaba, which he had memorized exactly what it looked like so he would be able to find it no matter what, he went and he knocked on the door and Marjana came to the door and she uh asked what they wanted not they just one dude i keep forgetting she can't see the other guys it's just she can only see one guy like what would you and all of your mules like (laughs) she was like you know she asked like what he needed and he said i am an oil merchant and i'm traveling from far away and i have just come into your city and it is getting dark and i was wondering if i could have a place to stay, even out in your stable with my mules, uh, to spend the night. So Marjana went and she got Alibaba. Alibaba came, heard what this man wanted, and was like, you will be welcomed into my home as a guest because hospitality is very, very important in um, Middle Eastern culture. 
And so this this tracks. And so he invited the fake oil merchant like into the house. And before they were getting the food ready, he was like, oh, well, I need to, you know, get put these mules away and get all of the the jars off of the back of these mules. So the servants helped to move all the mules into the stable and take the the sacks down or they're not sacks i keep forgetting they're not sacks so they take the leather jars off of the mules and set them down and the captain of the thieves goes to each one of the jars and he says at night when you hear me throwing uh this like these small gravel onto the outside of the leather jars you'll hear this small gravel hitting your leather jars and that's when you'll know everybody's asleep you can jump up run into the house we'll slaughter him quickly and then leave and all the men are like okay sounds good inside the jars (laughs) okay sounds good (laughs) that's what they talk like when they are what do you sound like it's like okay boss Okay, boss. Um, so the captain of the thieves went in and was given like delicious stew to eat and like all of the regular things that you would expect from like a family dinner and eating. And Alibaba turned to Morjana and he said, I need you to prepare this man, the oil merchant's uh, bed Go and fetch his bed linens and like prepare his bed so that he has like a nice place to lay down. And she was like, of course, that is my job. So she went to go fetch her lamp because it was already starting to get dark outside. So she grabbed the linens and she went to go get her lamp, but it had run out of oil. So she went to the serving boy who was like inside the kitchen and she was like, can you go and fetch me some oil? in the storeroom for my lamp and he was like oh no we're all out of oil he's like but the oil merchant has 38 jars of oil outside and i don't think he'll mind if one lamp's worth is missing (laughs) um and so marjana was like yeah you're probably right i'll just go out and grab some of his So she goes outside, and as she is walking, her feet are, like, you know, crunching in the the gravel outside. And some of the rocks kick up, and they hit the leather jar. And she hears a voice being like, is it time? Is it now? Is it time? Is it now, boss? (laughs) (laughs) And she kind of startled, but not without her quick wit, replies back, not now, but soon. So then she goes to the next jar, and again, she hears a voice asking, is it now? She's like, not now, but soon. And she goes along to each one of them, and hearing each man talking to her, and she like replies, not now, but soon, until she gets to the last jar, which doesn't say anything to her, because it is, in fact, full of oil. (laughs) So... She takes a little bit of that oil, enough for her lamp for from the last jar, and she goes inside and gets the linens for the bed. She prepares the bed, and then she goes to Alibaba and the captain of the thieves, and she says, 
like, okay, I have your bedroom all set up for you. Let me lead you there. So she takes him upstairs to that room and like leaves him there, goes back downstairs. And as everybody else in the household is getting ready to go to sleep, she goes outside and she grabs the oil that is in the actual oil bag. So she takes that oil and she puts it onto on the fire where she had been cooking her stew and she starts just feeding in more logs until that fire gets really really hot and that oil is bubbling boiling hot mm. and then she goes outside and she pours boiling oil in on each one of the men oh in the leather jars oh, and man. boil slash drowns them in oh, boiling oil and then she goes to bed <laughs> as you do after you murder 37 people you're like well that's done and dusted so so once the house had quieted down the captain of the thieves was like okay now is time so he reaches into his pocket where he had gathered up some gravel and he threw it out the window at the jars and he could hear the rocks hitting the jars, but no noise was coming from <laughs> down there. And he was like, oh, my goodness, are they asleep? So he grabs some more rocks out of his pocket and he throws them down. And again, he doesn't hear anyone moving. So he creeps downstairs out into the courtyard and he opens up the first jar and immediately he is met with the smell of boiling hot oil and flesh mm. and he realizes oh no this man has been killed and then he opens the next one again this man's been killed he opens the next one he opens the next one he opens the next one they're all just full of all of his dead thieves oh, so man. he completely freaked out panics and runs away like a thief in the night. (laughs) 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 So the next morning, Alibaba wakes up early before, you know, he, he thinks the oil merchant is still asleep in his room. And when he goes downstairs, he sees the oil containers and the mule still there. So he's like, Oh, He turns to Morjana and he's like, give my best regards to the oil merchant. Uh, I'm off to work. And she's like, okay, no problem. Because she doesn't see any reason in freaking him out. (laughs) Which I'm like, oh, okay. She's like, "Eh, we all have our little secrets. Uh, (laughs) Some of us committed mass murder last night, but that's fine. So when he gets back from going about his day, he gets back and the mules are still there and the oil is still there. And he turns to Marjana and he's like, is the oil merchant still here? What happened? And she was like, see for yourself, which she could have just told him, saved him the grisly (laughs) sight, but all right. So he goes over and he's like, oh my goodness, what has happened? Why why, Why are these filled with men? And she explains that these were the thieves that had killed his brother, Kazim, And she told him all that she had done to try to save him from the thieves. And when he heard all that she had been doing, he said, 
that he now realized how much she owed her. And he said, I will not die before rewarding you as you deserve, for I owe you my life. But I guess he wasn't ready to actually like do anything about it. <laughs> so Alibaba was like, what should we do about like all these dead bodies? Because like 37 dead bodies is like a lot of dead bodies to like just like like have on hand. <laughs> um, like you it's like they were you know they had gone through all that work to like hide the one suspicious dead body and now it's like oh, this is like 37 is like it's excessive yeah so they were like well the only thing is you can just like build a giant ditch like behind the house and just like throw just, them all in there just casually dig up a mass grave you know yeah big like you do <laughs> like you do um so that's what they did they buried them Meanwhile, back at the cave, the captain of the guard has started to calm himself down after, you know, realizing that his entire crew now has been decimated. So now he was like calming himself down and he was like, okay, I need to get revenge on these people. I need to get revenge and figure out a scheme, a way to get back at these people for what they did. So first, I'm going to dress up, disguise myself, and I, and this is like a long con. He was like, I'm going to get a disguise. I'm going to see if I hear anybody talking about like, you know, a mass murder and like the town, <laughs> see if there's like any talk about that to kind of like get an idea of like what I'm up against or like find a name of like this guy. Oh, yeah, he was like at he was like back at the cave and it says, brave lads, he cried out, companions of my vigils, my struggles and adventures. Where are you? What will I do without you? Have I chosen you and collected you together only to see you perish all at once by a fate so deadly and so unworthy of your courage? Have you died sword in hand like brave men? I would regret your death. When will I ever be able to get together another band of hardy men like you again? <laughs> he goes on like this for a while. Wow. He's feeling he must a lot. I really of... love those dudes. Yeah. Band of brothers. Yeah. Tander. So, the captain of the guard decided that what he was going to do was he was going to disguise himself and go into the city and see if he could hear anything about uh any of these murders going on the 37 dead bodies he thought would create a stir but no he found nothing and he was like okay okay alibaba is being like really secretive about this which means i can go about this in a very secretive way as well so what he decided to do was since now he knew the identity of alibaba since he had had dinner with him been to his house all this stuff he knew he, who he was, and he knew Alibaba's son, which is the first time the son has popped up in the story so far. Yeah. But Alibaba had a son, an adult son, who had taken over Kazim's shop that was inside of the town. So the captain of the thieves, he found out that he could get a stall inside of the same market, and one of the customs was to go to all of your neighbors and kind of... Like, introduce yourself to them, like, get to know each other really well. So he made sure that he set up his shop right in front of Kazim's old shop, which was now being run by Alibaba's son. And Alibaba's son did not recognize 
the captain of the guard as the oil merchant from before because I guess he wasn't at that dinner. I don't know. This is the first time he's showing up. So maybe, and here's yeah. a disguise. Oh, that's true. This guy, he's got a lot of disguises. Dang. He just, he just really likes playing dress up. Indeed. So he meets Alibaba's son and is very kind to him. And he's doing all of these favors for Alibaba's son, being like, oh, let me give you some of my food. Oh, let me take you out to lunch. Let me like help you inside of your shop doing some stuff that you might need. Oh, anything you want, like I'm here for you. So Alibaba's son was feeling a little bit like, oh, this is kind of an uneven relationship. I need to be doing more for this man. So he goes to his father and he says, like, this man, he's new and he's been very kind and done a lot of stuff for me. And I feel like I need to do something kind for him or else I will look ungrateful. And that I'm just taking in all these favors, but not like returning any of them. What can I do? Should I like invite him like to come to dinner? And... Alibaba was like, no, don't invite him to come to dinner because that would give him an opportunity to say no to dining like at our house. What you should do is you should tell him that you want to like take him out to dinner, buy him a dinner or like go out with him and then casually walk past our house. And when you pass by our house, just knock on the door and I'll come and you can say that you want to introduce him to your father, <laughs> me, Alibaba. So. That is exactly what Alibaba's son did. He asked the captain of the guard, oh, do you want to come, like, out with me tonight? Do, do you want to, like, do something? Can I, like, host you an activity, something? Let's do, let's hang out. Let's chill. <laughs> hey, bro, want to chill? It's like, yes, I am quite into chilling. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alibaba's son took what he thought was this other shopkeeper, but really we know that he is the captain of now 39 dead thieves. <laughs> and they together go walking and they soon start to pass the house of Alibaba. And so the son says, oh, one moment, please. And he knocks on the door and Alibaba comes to the door and he's like, oh, my son, how are you? Oh, is this the man who has been so kind and so generous and wonderful to you? And the son's like, yes, this is like the new shopkeeper. And Alibaba's like, oh, my son has told me so many wonderful things about you, just what a great guy you are, how wonderful you are. Please, please, you must come inside our house to eat with us. So the captain of the thieves, he says like, oh, no, no, no. Like I couldn't impose, I couldn't impose. And... Alibaba's like, no, 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 you must stay. You must, you must come in and eat with us. And the captain of the guard, he says, no, 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 you don't understand. I can't eat any food that has salt in it, which this is a thing that requires a backstory that I'm not going to give you. But like, <laughs> like I'm, I'm like, it tracks, guys, because if you give, maybe I will get into it. it there was like something about the culture this common hospitality thing that like if somebody has gone out of their way to like put salt in the food to make it very flavorful and good for you and then you disrespect them or you do something bad to them inside your home it like causes like a, a like a curse to come upon you it's almost like kind of like bad like it's bad karma right if somebody is willing to give you salt and then you do something bad uh like to them like it's very bad so he's saying like but he's saying, like, oh, I'm allergic to salt. Or, like, I can't eat salt. Right, because he doesn't want... He knows he's going to be doing something bad. Yeah, so but also the same... Yeah, but also at the same time, 
he could, you know, plausibly say to somebody like, oh, I can't eat salt. And you've probably put salt in your food already as a kind gesture. And I have a dietary problem. Yeah. But really what it was, was like the captain, he didn't want to eat salt in this person's house because then it would prohibit him from like doing the deadly. Yeah. But Alibaba was like, oh, no, no, it's no problem. It's no problem at all. Like it is totally fine. You don't have to worry about it. I will get my like slave woman who Morjana who like makes food and I'll tell her not to. The bread already doesn't have salt in it so we can eat the bread while she remakes the food. So he calls Morjana over and she walks over and immediately this woman, she like sees that she's like, what? Wait a minute. This is just the oil merchant thief dude in a disguise. <laughs> you put on a fake mustache and he thinks we won't recognize him? Come on. Yeah, like, come on, guys. And Alibaba's like, oh, this is like our guest. He's been a friend to my son. Would you be able to like remake the stew? And she's like, yeah, no problem. I'll get right on that. So she goes like into the kitchen and she is remaking the stew. And at the same time, she is telling the the other like slave boy servant person she was like, listen very carefully, and I will tell you how we are going to save our master. Cute little kid, you know, like, leaning in to, like, listen to her. And it, like, cuts, goes back to the dinner table. So these people are sitting down, like, eating bread, munching, and she comes out with, like, the stew. And so she serves everybody her stew. And then she says to Alibaba, if you don't mind, I am now going to eat the servant's dinner with this boy if that's okay with you. And Alibaba was like, of course, yes, you must eat as well. Like, go, we'll be fine while we eat. We don't need you until later. And she's like, okay, no problem. So they walk out. And now the captain of the thieves is thinking, oh, now I have plenty of time. I will get Alibaba and his son very, very drunk so that I can kill Alibaba. And that way I don't have to kill the son. I can spare the son's life. Which I'm like, that's so generous. <laughs> what a what a kind-hearted man. What a great guy. And he's like, we have plenty of time now because we won't have any witnesses. The servant Morjana and the other kid have like left. But while they're like, you know, knocking back all the wine. Meanwhile, Morjana is getting into her exotic dancer outfit. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, girl, get it. So it says she put on a dancer's costume with a proper headdress and around her waist, she tied a belt of gilded silver to which she attached a dagger Mm. whose sheath and handle were of the same metal so that she could delicately put that in there to disguise it. So she turned to the servant boy and she said, grab your tambourine. So I'm like, yeah, indeed. So he grabs the tambourine and He starts playing the tambourine and she dances her way back into the dinner. And Alibaba, now a bit more drunk than he was before, and his son, also a little bit more drunk than they were before, they're like, oh, Marjana, you didn't have to. And she's (laughs) like, oh, I knew it was like a special dinner because this guy is here and I'm going to make it nice for you. Uh. So she's like, you know, dancing and they're clapping and they're singing, having a great time. This kid's like playing the tambourine. And so it goes on like this for a while. And the captain of the thieves slash disguised merchant dude 
he's like, what in the world is this? Like, why is this going on for like as long as it is? But he's like, okay, whatever. (laughs) I can kill these guys later. It's no problem. So she's like dancing around, having a good time. And then she takes the tambourine and she like holds it in front of Alibaba and she acts like she is, you know, a person performing out in like a festival. It's all a big like charade. Mm-hmm. So she holds out her tambourine upside down so it forms like a little bowl and he like laughs and he throws in a coin and then he kind of like nudges his son and his son who's really enjoying Marjana's dancing. He's like, man, that girl is fine. So he throws in some extra coins because he's like all about this dance. <laughs> And then they kind of look over at the merchant and she heads over to the merchant and he's like, okay, fine. So he goes to kind of like pull back his like cloak and she grabs her dagger and stabs him straight in the heart. (laughs) Nice. And Alibaba was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And the son is like, what just happened? Because they just watched this woman straight up murk a man. For no reason, they think. For no, yeah, for no reason. That's what you get for not tipping. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, but she goes, look, Alibaba. And she points to his, like, pulled back coat. And they can all see the dagger that he had had concealed. And he was like, what? What is the meaning of this? And she's like, this is the oil merchant who is at our house. <laughs> Are you stupid? <laughs> um, she doesn't say that. But she's like, this is the oil merchant who is at our house, who is the captain of the thieves. And he was like, oh, my goodness, you are right. And this is the second time in which you have saved my life. And so if I may reward you, I want to free you since you were my brother's slave, and I would like it if you were to marry my son, if he I will have she, you. I yeah, knew yeah. she was going to marry the son, or he was going <laughs> to offer the son. He's like, take my son. And the son's like, take me. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of an interesting, nice little twist on normally it's like the king or whoever is giving the daughter away daughter as like away. a reward, but now he's giving the son away. Yeah, he's like, do you want my son? She's like, sure, why not? You both are dum-dums. <laughs> <laughs> So Marjana is free. She is now married to Alibaba's son. Alibaba has been saved, but there had been 40 thieves and they could only account for 38 of them. So Alibaba kept watch over the cave for a year. And when he thought that the coast was clear and that most likely the other two had died in some other kind of misadventure, which we know it was because they got murdered earlier (laughs) by their own crew. Yeah. I was like, wait, but we knew that they died, but Alibaba and his people. Yeah. 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 It's like, we, we knew, we knew (laughs) Alibaba didn't. And once he knew that the cave was secure and he was the only one who knew the secrets, he knew that he could come and go as he pleased getting money whenever their family needed it, and they could pass that knowledge on for generations to come. The end. Oh. So, first off, was that story anything like you thought it was going to be? No, it was not. And it was so different from the story that I told. I mean, it was actually very, very similar until, like, the 
Alibaba story went half. on for like, yeah, not even just the second half. It was like, you know, three-fourths more added on to the end of it. Yeah, because when I was like, and they cut him in half. So then, and it was like, wait, what? Wait, wait, what? So then, that's the end. Yeah, it's like, no, we're only halfway done. But it's it seems like in my mind and probably in a lot of people's minds, like they just conflate like the captain of the thieves with Alibaba. It's like yeah, there is w- like a character like that, but we think that's Alibaba. But Alibaba is really just like kind of some kind no, of a bumbling like, like. Like I truly thought that the story of Alibaba and the 40 Thieves was going to be a lot like uh, Robin Hood. Yeah. Like that's, I thought that it was like, these 40 thieves had like either like it was like heists yeah. that the stories were about their heists like all yeah. together or the story was like, oh, they're stealing from like rich people and then like giving out the wealth to like other people. Right. Yeah. They're like that's, honorable that's what thieves. I thought. Yeah, that's what I thought that the the story was about, which is like it. The, no, that I don't, I don't know where I got close. that. Instead, yeah, it's it, all about murder. Yes. Yes. No, and I love that it started off as, and that, like in the French, that the story is Le Finesses de Morjana, like the stratagems yeah. of Morjana, which it's like, how did we get the stratagems of Morjana and be like Alibaba and the 40 Thieves? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's because the titles are usually given to what people consider the the main elements that make it easy to remember it. Yeah. And so I guess. Some people are like, they remember more Alibaba because he is throughout the whole story. Yeah, Morjana appears like way later on. Yeah, she just pops up so that she can like trick everybody into all being dead yeah. or killing them herself. Right. I guess the f- only two of them she didn't kill herself. Yeah. Man, that woman is deadly. <laughs> She's got Yikes. High, got quite a high body count. Man. And then, like, Alibaba's like, would you like to marry my son to, like, ensure you don't murder our family? (laughs) Yeah. She's probably running the show now. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. If anybody wants to, like, argue with her and that family about something, she's like, I'm sorry, what did you say, father-in-law? One thing that I don't get is why the captain of the thieves, like, decided to go back and try to get revenge after all of his people had died because really weren't they trying to get revenge on someone stealing from them the whole time that led to all these people dying it was was it just like a sunk cost fallacy situation going on he's like i think it was both like a sunk cost fallacy of he wanted to get uh he wanted to like avenge the deaths of his crew that he like cared so much about because he did yeah. go on for a while that's about, true like, yeah how much you love them but also because like they had stolen all that money they didn't he didn't want to be like found out. Right. Like he had this cool magic cave that he'd been stashing his stuff in for who knows how long, like full of stuff. And so I think he didn't want to lose the rest of his stuff. Mm-hmm. And so he was just thinking like, okay, if I can get in there and murder this one guy who knows like my business, then I can maybe go off and get a new crew. Yeah. At some point. So yeah, I think it was both like some cost fallacy and of the wanting the revenge and the like guarding the secret. Yeah. And it was interesting too how who really is like the primary actor in the stories, not the one that things just kind of keep happening to, is Morgiana. And, you know, it's weird that she's not in the first part of the story, but I guess part of it is 
you know, that's just setting up this whole second part. Yeah. But yeah, but it's just interesting how it's like, it, it does make me think of titles and how important they are. You know, it's kind of become a recurring thing where I always talk about the titular character. And in this case, depending on the translation, the titular character is completely different. But it does put you in a mindset of like thinking one way or the other about something. Like it is interesting like what you're saying because like Alibaba, aside from him going and just being outside and happening to see this stuff yeah. and deciding to grab like one mule's worth of like gold. Besides that, he didn't do a whole lot. Yeah. Except being like, oh my gosh, we need to like cover our track. We have to bury this <laughs> yeah. body in like a way. Like he's more of like standing there going, oh gosh, how do we handle this problem? Yeah. Just dig a hole. <laughs> but yeah, he most of the time was just like around chaos happening right but it also the argument could be made like if it weren't for him the story wouldn't happen like yeah morjana is the one that like makes things happen but only as in reaction to the stuff that he did plus you can also look at it in two ways as far as like the you know character arc that they go on like it starts off with alibaba he's poor he doesn't have any money this is the story of how he gets his riches yeah. And there are other people that help him along the way. But in the end, in, in the beginning, he starts off poor. He has his like misadventures. And in, in the end, he inherits like all of the gold of the thieves that was left in the cave. Yeah. And At the same time, Morjana has a similar story where she goes yeah. from being a slave to being freed to marrying the son Into of now this, this like, rich nice, guy. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, that you've stumbled into this. Talking about like stories of lower class people like raising and like class status. Um, so I have a quote from Stranger Magic by Marina Warner. It says, Galan's act of homage, imitation, and extrapolation drew from the genre of the knights a structure that emphasized growing Western European ideas, talismanic things, binding verbal formulae, and infinite potential for inverting social status in a world of mobile capital and phantasmagoric wealth creation. <laughs> Marina Warner and her vocabulary is so She's much for me. Putting us all to shame, yeah. Yeah, it's like I'm, like, I'm like, oh gosh, I can't read. But like, what she's pointing out is that like the stories, especially if we look at Aladdin and Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, they are stories about people who overcome class boundaries, how like the wealth that they were born without mm-hmm. and were able to get riches and have their whole lives reversed and like brought up. And this was happening in a time and a place where you were born into aristocracy and high breeding or you were not. Yeah. Like, so the stories in Europe where this was happening and in like the Middle East where these stories were being said to take place, mm-hmm. like also operated in that same way with like, um, and both of them, both of them, interestingly, the level that was kind of the middle ground in both of those like societies mm-hmm. were merchants. Yeah. Because merchants were like, they weren't aristocracy, they were working people. They were considered worth working class people with the potential for like so much wealth. Right, because they're the ones that are like selling things and trading things like 
it makes sense that yeah. those were the people that could have any type of like mobility. Like they would always just be a merchant, but they're within the merchant class be the separation of like the merchants who are like really good and successful and have a lot of money and the merchants that aren't so much. Yeah. And so it's like, it makes sense that these stories would be interesting to people who like, you know, Antoine Galland taking, you know, what she says, like paying homage to like the genre of the nights and like extrapolating stories from like what he'd heard to also be speaking about like a topic that was very interesting in Europe at the yeah. time. And that's something, too, that really points out to me that it is an orphan tale, that it's something that was added on later that was of a European origin in that it made sense to me the whole time. Like there was nothing that kind of like threw me off about the story, whereas every other story of the Knights, there's always been something that's like, oh, you really need to understand this about the culture or the religion or the you know, the folklore surrounding these mythical creatures or something like that. Like this one, it didn't have any of that that really needed to be explained. The closest thing that comes is like the not eating salt thing, but that's also kind of a European sort of a thing. Like it came up in Game of Thrones, which I know is a fictional work, but they base that <laughs> off of, you know, they base it's based strongly off of like the War of Roses and like, you know, European. Yeah. Like, and like so much yeah. of our fantasy and, literature yeah. is, but the whole thing of like eating in someone's houses, that means that you are under their protection because you are then a guest and all that. It's like, yeah. And plus like Antoine Galland, he was like a person who studied that area of the world. Like that's yeah. why he was able to translate the knights. Right. He, so like he knew like things like that to like throw them in so that like, like they had the same feel as the knights. And that's why it's interesting to look at like the story of that the Brothers Grimm collected. Mm -hmm. Because like exactly like Robert Irwin said, like when we were first talking about this, that the tales after they had circulated through Europe and became kind of their own, they had been like stripped of anything that felt like it took place in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting because it's like Galan put all that work into making it like, like yeah. building the story like around that area from like stories that he had read and stuff. And then like European folk took all that stuff that seemed too foreign to them. And made it a story full of characters that they were like, Oh, I understand these like, or like, this isn't a land that's unfamiliar to me. It's a place I could imagine like myself falling into. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. We've talked a lot about with all sorts of folklore. That's one of the interesting things about it because it's not by one author. You can kind of extrapolate kind of broad strokes about what life was like or what people were like or what yeah. attitudes towards things were like, because it got boiled down to like, you know, the lowest common denominator of what everyone could more or less agree on. And that makes sense that those types of things would get, you know, that were unfamiliar to most people in the European cultures that they were being circulated in that, of course, the first things to go would be the stuff that they didn't really understand or that not everyone would understand. Yeah, like the details that like would be the most relevant to them were like the details that got saved, which were like, there's a rich brother and a poor brother and the rich brother got jealous once the poor brother wasn't poor anymore and yeah. wanted in on that. But then he got tricked. 
Yeah. Or tricked himself or like whatever, however way it worked. But it's like, that's the stuff that like was like, oh, that stuff makes sense. And it also makes sense that others, the, the second half of the story kind of like gets lost and chopped off because it's a lot more convoluted. Yeah, it's much more complicated. Yeah. And it's not just because like, it was like, oh, the second half has like a woman character as a lead. Let's get rid of her. Because I mean, it could have very easily been like uh, they could have switched it into being like a smart male servant if yeah. it was about like, you know, feminism or whatever. Yeah. But I think that truly it's like, oh, it was too convoluted for like people to like remember the second half. Mm-hmm. And so that just that one got lost. As it got retold. Yeah. And it has a much cleaner kind of message. If you end it at that point, it's like, hey, don't be too greedy for all of these riches because it'll get you in the end. Like, because it talks about too, like in the text, it says specifically, like the reason why he couldn't remember the password to get out because he was so overcome with like his lust for the riches that he couldn't remember (laughs) what the mountains was called. When I get too greedy, I also forget. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. The names of things. Forget my own name. So at the beginning of the episode, I said that we would talk about the question of if these are orphan tales, why should we look at them at all? Like, why talk about them when studying the Thousand One Nights? Shouldn't we just like start to like shun them and pretend that they like aren't part of it, that they don't exist? So these stories are always included in editions of the Arabian Nights. Even the Penguin translations that are from the 2000s, when it was already known that these were orphan tales, they were still included. They didn't put them inside of the counted knights. They put them in separately because they still have a place in the knights. At this point, the orphan tales have been included in the Knights collections for over 300 years. Wow. And they have, as we have been talking about, inspired other oral tale traditions in other areas. So for the purpose of enjoying this story, does it matter that they're orphan tales? No. For academic purposes, is it important? Yes. Like, you should <laughs> definitely, like, you should know and, like, be aware. But, like, The Knights was a collection of stories that was supposed to be built. And uh, I guess I shouldn't say supposed to be because there are some scholars who would argue that there were original stories. And then there were other people who treated it like a hole in the ground that they could throw their <laughs> garbage into. <laughs> Woo! so for hundreds of years if not a millennia the knights has been a collection where stories from all over have been added to it there are some stories that we've talked about that have roots back to the panchatantra and the like persia syria stories from all over have been added to this collection to make it what we have today. And so after 300 years of being like added into this collection, I think it's actually kind of like beautiful that a man who 
loved the night so much and was so fascinated by it was able to create stories that for almost 300 years went like unnoticed as add-ons inside of the collection. And like, lastly, I think what's so important academically about looking at it is like asking the questions like why it was so successful, both at blending into the fabric of the nights and why it got so popular. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inge for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar. Okay. I want to hear about the strategies of Morgiana. Morgiana. That sounds Italian, especially the way we're saying it. Yeah, I'm like, hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. It's like, wait, is the strategies of Morgiana, is that the one that you get with like the eggplant and the Parmesan cheese on top? I'll take the, oh my gosh, we should open a thousand and one nights themed restaurant. So I'd like the strategy of Morgiana with a side salad, balsamic vinaigrette, please. With some sesame seeds. (laughs) 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 Oh. Oh my goodness. Okay. We did it.